Hey there, this is Steve Lee with Veritas Catholic Network. Bishop Frank is going to get into some tough but important topics today on Let Me Be Frank. Abortion, end-of-life care, helping immigrants and the poor. Plus, we have a listener question about heaven. Hey, spread the word to the folks you know, your family members, your fellow parishioners, your coworkers, your neighbors. There's a place where they can hear solid Catholic teaching and uplifting and edifying conversations 24 hours a day. It's here at 1350 AM on the radio and on the Veritas Catholic Network mobile app. You can also listen on iHeart, on your Alexa, and on your Google Home device. All right, welcome back to Let Me Be Frank, everybody. It is my pleasure, as always, to introduce Bishop Frank Caggiano. Steve, it's good to see you. I actually see you today, <laughs> since we're in the same room. <laughs> I'm glad that it's good. You know, it, it doesn't have to be good. <laughs> but thank you, Excellency, likewise. Um, so we are really going to get into it today, Excellency. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. People either don't want to talk about these issues, or they just want to fight about these things that we're going to talk about. But, um, uh, you know, so, so let's get into it. Archbishop Nauman recently said that the threat of abortion mm-hmm. remains our preeminent priority because it directly attacks life itself, mm-hmm. because it takes place within the sanctuary of the family and because of the number of lives destroyed. Mm-hmm. So with that, yeah, let's, let's talk about mm-hmm. abortion. Mm-hmm. Well, I think before we do that, we do have to take more of a bird's eye view, don't we, of what the church teaches in general. Yes, about life maybe overall. Exactly, about life. Um, And this is Respect Life Month, right, October? Right. It's also the 25th anniversary of uh, the the Gospel of Life by St. John Paul II, Mm. right? And so we as believers, as Catholic Christians, have to understand that there is both a philosophical, theological basis for the cardinal belief that every human life is precious, irreplaceable, and has inherent dignity and must be protected. Okay? So the logic of that from Scripture is very clear because in Genesis we're told that we are made in the image and likeness of God, which means that we are the receptacle of God's life and grace. And our destiny is not visible. Our destiny is to have that image and likeness fulfilled in Him. So every life, therefore, is beyond price because God is beyond price. Mm -hmm. And then in our faith, um, we understand the path to, to, to fulfill that destiny is Jesus Christ. So if you consider that God, second person of blessed trinity, took a human life and shared that life in all things but sin, then he also sanctified every human life because he offered his life for every human life that would respond to him, that would welcome him, that would follow him. So in the end, um, from scripture it's clear. Also, scripture says, does it not, in the Decalogue, thou shalt not kill. Yes. I don't think it gets any clearer than that, does it? I mean, honestly, right. even yeah. for the obtuse, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's clear, thou shalt not kill. And Jesus perfects it by saying, in the positive, you, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So there is both, if I may put it this way, there is the via negativa and the via positiva. Negativa is you are to do no harm, least of all, kill, 
but you're also to love in its fullness your right. neighbor mm-hmm. so that that person's life may have every opportunity and avenue and a gift necessary to thrive as is its destiny in this life because the fullness of it of course as we said comes in the life to come so um so the church has always held in fact you know it's funny in my confirmation homily now so uh, don't tell anyone who's receiving confirmation if you see this <laughs> podcast but but <laughs> plug your ears <laughs> plug your ears it's all about masks it's masks it's the elephant in the room and to to contextualize it for our young friends who are being confirmed is that we wear masks not to protect ourselves not only in obedience to this department of health but we're doing it because it's christian love christian love demands it because we value human life to protect human life even the frail the elderly the sick and those who may be susceptible to the virus that we don't know about to love your neighbor known and unknown so in the larger context, this fundamental principle that every human life must be protected permeates every aspect of Christian life and conduct. Yeah. Right? So Bishop Nowen is correct. All right? The fundamental piece all right, is a person needs to be born into the world to have every other avenue or opportunity to be respected possible. Right. Right? Right. The difficulty is that we live in a world of lies. We live in a world that believes a fetus is something other than a human person. And they will turn to some of the classic models, like for example, this whole idea of insolment, mm-hmm. that even St. Thomas in some of his writings, right, uh, elucidated a bit. Right. That when uh, a human person is conceived, that there is a period of time between the conception of the person and the reception of the soul, which is a gray area. But you see, but that is false reasoning, with all due respect to St. Thomas. It's false reasoning because that fetus left undisturbed would develop into the child to be born. So in effect, how are we to know when this supposed insolment happens? We know it happens because you can't be human without a soul, without a human soul. Right. So it would seem to me just in order to protect life, one should assume that the insolment occurs at conception because why, why would there be a delay? Again, prudence and I think just right thinking would, would not, could not possibly use that as an argument to justify abortion. Right. Right? Yes. Now, I did a little homework and in um, the Evangelium Vitae, um, this is what St. John Paul II defines. He says, in Article 58, he says, Procured abortion is the deliberate and direct killing of a human being by whatever means it is carried out at any time between conception and birth. Now, that definition needs to be unpacked because the attack could be direct and indirect. Mm-hmm. Right, and there are levels of complicity that you can be complicit in the act to varying degrees that makes you co-culpable right. with the sin. 
whether that is the doctor who performs it or the nurse that assists, whether it is family and friends that counsel to do it, mm-hmm. whether it is you're a legislator or a politician or a governor or someone who actually permits it by law right. or facilitates it, uh, all of these are levels of, of complicity in the act, in the, in the sin, in this grave, objectively disordered right, sin. So, um, we live in a world of false choices. And the idea that um, if a woman has conceived a child, that it is her choice whether that child could have life, right, is really in a sense a false choice because women do have choices, right? We all do. But sometimes that choice occurs before the act of conception, right. not after the act of conception. That's a consequence to a choice already made. Yes. Right? And therefore, it is a very sensitive issue to some. But the truth of the matter is, um, if we do not stand firm in opposing abortion in every case, then we are on the slippery slope of making life dispensable or disposable which, as we have seen, can extend past birth. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah. Right? Which brings us to the other horror, which is euthanasia. Yeah. Right? But before we get into that, it, it, where, where does it stop? Where, and, and then again, you're into this, into this horrific scenario that we are choosing, what? To be the judge of when life is possible or should be permitted or should go forward. Right. That's only God's prerogative, it's not ours. Again, we've talked many times about the fundamental sin. Fundamental sin is we make God into our image. Yes. Well, th- that's disastrous. Yeah, yeah, because, because who gets to decide who lives and who dies? Right, right. You know, and I noticed in your list of, of folks with varying levels of, mm-hmm. um, you know, in the, the folks who are complicit mm-hmm. to varying degrees, I noticed you didn't say the mother, and and I'm guessing that's because like Mother Teresa said, two thirds of all the victims of abortion are women, meaning the moms are mm. also in many mm. cases victims to a degree. Without a doubt, and quite frankly, we as a church, there have been some noble efforts on the part of some in our church and in other Christian churches and other people of goodwill to be of help to women who find themselves pregnant and a boyfriend walks away or a husband is totally opposed to the birth of the child or happens to be in dire poverty. And she's left with a terrible situation and dilemma to deal with. And society walks away. And even in faith, we say, well, that child has a right to be born, but isn't it also our co-responsibility in some way to be of help to that woman so that it's feasible and it's possible, all right, in a way that the child will be born and that child will have a mother who has support to be able to do what God would ask of of that mother or father to do? Yeah. Right? So, I mean, it's one thing to be able to stand firm in the faith, which we all need to do, it's another thing to operationalize it, to, to allow the circumstances to be so that those who find themselves struggling with this choice, okay, with this decision, 
mm-hmm. will have people supporting them spiritually and tangibly so that they can make the decision in the mind of what Christ wants. Yeah. So if you look at that, complacency extends even in, in a lesser degree to a, a lot <laughs> who are not willing to help. Yeah. Right? That's why, you know, there are tremendous, it's tremendously heroic heroism, you know, for the safe houses and places where women who are struggling with this, well, much of what Mother Teresa did, what the Sisters of Life do, right? Mm -hmm. That's heroic, it's heroic holiness because you're actually opening the door or helping a person to make the right decision and not be left alone making the right decision. Yeah. Okay. And you know, you will you will hear some people say, "Well, you know what? You have to accept the consequences. You made the choice to 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 do this, right? To act in a certain way that allowed for this conception. And therefore, why is it my responsibility to make up for whatever you did?" But the truth is, that is what it means to be a community of faith. What it means to be ecclesially sisters and brothers. Yeah. You don't turn your back on those in your family when they make. A, a decision that has consequences that you can help them to overcome. Yeah. That's what families are for. So are we not a family in faith? Are we not a family in the Lord Jesus? So I right. mean, I, I don't think that's a valid, I don't think it's a valid uh, path. Yeah. Or criticism. Yeah, mm-hmm. we're one body in Christ and when one member suffers, the entire body suffers. Uh, right, right. Yeah. So many times women find themselves in very difficult and dire circumstances and can easily be overwhelmed by the circumstances. And if there's no one there to help them, or speak to them, or, or accompany them, it is very, in many ways, they can be, in a sense, themselves victimized yeah. by, the, by the circumstance they find themselves in and the lack of attention others give to be of help. Yeah. You know, so my family, we regularly go down to the March for Life, mm-hmm. which I, we love doing it's mm-hmm. such a, a great and important event and it's important that you know the country to the extent the media will, will report it sees half a million people there mm-hmm. standing up for life and so many young faces and you know we give a, a little bit to crisis pregnancy centers but it's still as I'm listening to you those things are still not personal and face-to-face and, I'm, and, and I was thinking of um, Tom and Noel Amon in Stanford who yes. put together that Project Beloved, which is amazing. And they've gone really all in and done something big. But on a, you know, on a more day-to-day personal basis, what can you recommend you know, I do, my family does, to, to help? Is there something? Well, I'm, I'm sure there is. I mean, it, it's all particular to the circumstances, right? Mm-hmm. Because in the end, um, if, if a woman finds herself in a position of being pregnant and struggling over this very question, that will be individual people that you may or may not come to know. Mm-hmm. Right? But if I could lift it a little bit higher and uh, broader and simply say parenting in general is difficult. So there are many a parent who will choose to have the child born into the world and then that child is neglected, that child does not have the upbringing it needs, it doesn't have the emotional and, and, and uh, psychological support, they are, they are sometimes our neighbors. Yeah. Sometimes our friends, sometimes our relatives. Right. And there is something that can be done. 
not simply to go in to to kind of be like a corrective and say you should be doing that. No, 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 no. But once again, if we are all sisters and brothers, then to be able to be present to those children yeah. and offer them support and encouragement as to the parents, support right. and encouragement. Mm-hmm. If the gospel of life is life from conception to death, then there is there would be multiple opportunities each day to stand with life. Whether it is to help a woman to come to term with her pregnancy, with her child, or whether it is a young child that you know is, is desperately in need of attention yeah. or encouragement, or someone, a classmate of, of one of our children, your children, you know, that um, you know, seemingly doesn't have a direction or is looking for some paternal or maternal influence because at home he or she may not have it. Um, or, you know, you, you're raising teenagers and everything that goes on. With, I mean, you, we could yeah. go on and on and on. There's ample opportunities to yeah. respect life. Okay. And so then we're talking right now about the beginning of life. And there's also, as you said, the end of life. Hey, euthanasia. Euthanasia. And it used to be that this meant, you know, for the elderly, but more and more it means for the young as well. It's exactly so. It's, it's what they call mercy killing, which is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. It's a complete misnomer. Right? So once again, in Evangelium Vitae, right, St. John Paul II in Article 65, this is how he defines euthanasia. Okay, he says, euthanasia is an act or omission which of itself and by intention causes death with the purpose of eliminating all suffering. Now, let's break this apart. Okay, Act or omission so someone is terminally ill and they are denied the basics, like food and water. Yeah. And they're just made quote unquote comfortable because they're dying, all right? Which is cruel. Right. Absolutely cruel. Or, as you allude to, in some of the European countries and quite frankly, some of the states in the United States where you can actively, actively induce death. All right, all right. so <clears throat> a couple of things. First, ordinary and extraordinary means is very important for all of us to consider because there is an obligation in the moral order to do the ordinary things to both protect and prolong life. Extraordinary, there is no moral obligation to do. So a person may be listening and say, okay, well then what's extraordinary? Mm -hmm. I'm glad you asked (laughs) because there are two criteria that are very important. First is that that which is being done, that which would be prescribed, that the, for example, like a chemotherapy or some, would be disproportionate to the desired results from doing it, okay? Or it would create a, a simply undue burden, an extraordinary burden on either patient, family, or both. So extraordinary means keep changing because what's extraordinary in one generation becomes ordinary in the other. I remember the first heart, the uh, artificial heart. Do you remember? In Texas, it was, oh, you probably weren't even born. <laughs> All right, that's very sobering. <laughs> uh, in Texas, uh, the famous cardiologist, whose name escapes me now. Um, in fact, Bishop McGovern, the Bishop of, of Brooklyn, had a secret heart surgery 
in, in Texas, in that facility. Oh, wow. Yeah. Anyway, he created the first artificial heart. Extraordinary, right? But now heart-lung machines are, are much more common than, than when they were first invented. No, but so it keeps shifting. Sure. Ordinary, extraordinary. But nonetheless, so what, what the Holy Father, what the church teaches is you're not obliged to do absolutely everything and the kitchen sink to stay alive. Because your destiny, please God, is to go to heaven. Right. Right. But ordinary means, yes, yeah, so euthanasia doesn't make that distinction. It says regardless of what's extraordinary or ordinary, there's suffering here, and therefore suffering's a bad thing, and therefore suffering is, all right, should be eliminated. All right. Now, um, what do we hold as Christians? That suffering is redemptive. <laughs> that su- it's through suffering of the Lord Jesus, his passion and death, that we have life. Mm-hmm. Okay. Do you embrace suffering for its own sake? Of course not. Do you look for suffering? Of course not, because that's masochism. But when it does come, it comes, could come with a, a divine outcome. Suffering can purify. Suffering can clarify. Suffering can help person empty, completely empty themselves before the Lord and His mercy. Suffering can bring someone to contrition. Yeah. Right? So why would you, in this mistaken notion that suffering is to be avoided, why would you deny a person whatever other days that person has to have any or all of what I described happen to them? Most especially the possibility of surrendering to God's grace and and to enter into a real heartfelt moment of surrender that leads to reconciliation that leads to glory yeah I mean who are we to say that couldn't happen the next day or the day after that's absurd and with advanced medicine and the pain medication we have that can keep a person lucid and conscious but also mitigate pain I don't understand. I honestly do not understand what any, what any rational basis there is for euthanasia. Not only because of faith, but simply as a rational position, I don't understand it. Yeah. I, I will say one thing, though. Forgive me. I just cut you off. But there is one, unspoken, okay? And forgive me for being truly blunt. But many times it's dollars and cents. Many times it's triage and said, we only have a certain amount of resources and why are we wasting all these resources on these people that are gonna die? So why don't we waste it, well, spend it, now we're supposedly spend it somewhere else. Now you're trying to tell me in a country like ours, right, that there is a justification to triage those resources when you look at the money that's being spent in other things in society? We've got to be kidding, right? You've got to be kidding if that's the rationale. Yeah. And sometimes selfishness. I'm thinking of the Terry Schiavo case mm-hmm. from many years ago. Um, so euthanasia, in the end, act or omission, is either suicide or murder. Yeah. That's all it is. Yeah. At least as the way the church sees it. Yeah. Um, so just then, just to um, put a, a, a finer point on the extraordinary versus ordinary. Mm-hmm. So, for example, the ordinary means would be food and water. Everybody has Without a right a doubt. to that. Extraordinary would be like a like um, artificial breathing machine because everybody's eventually Correct. gonna okay. Correct. Right. Got it. Exactly. 
and there is and there is a there's a need to discern in between yeah like for example if a person has been diagnosed with stage 4 cancer and the prognosis is very dim um, is it legitimate is it licit morally for a person to say with every and any means available to me I only have perhaps between four and six months to live. I would choose not to take the therapy and live the rest of my time with my family, mm -hmm. and God will take me when God is ready to do that. See, that is perfectly legitimate in the moral order for a believer, for okay. a Catholic. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I just, you know, I know personally from the past year, as you know, Excellency, mm -hmm. you can't, you need, when you're suffering, if you allow yourself, if you surrender that, as you were saying, that's, that's when God can say to you, my grace is sufficient for you. Right. One other thing too, my friend, is that when someone you love is suffering, so do you. Yes. And do we ever consider the possibility that the heroic suffering of the person we love in the bed is actually an invitation to us to surrender and conversion and contrition. Yeah. That is their gift to us, yeah. right? So again, in euthanasia, this mistaken notion that suffering has to be eliminated at all costs, you're actually, the ones advocate, the ones who are doing it are actually cheapening themselves because they may be denying themselves the God-given possibility, a gift from the person suffering right. for their own conversion. Yeah, yeah, amen. Let's um let's take a quick break, Excellency, and we'll push some more buttons when we come back. Absolutely. Catholic Radio works, and now we have it here in Connecticut and New York. It's been seen around the country that there's no better tool for evangelization. Where there's Catholic Radio, the folks who listen deepen their faith, families are strengthened, parishes and communities flourish. So, let people know you're listening to Veritas. Tell your friends to tune in, and let's make an impact here for Jesus and his church. This is Steve Lee for Veritas Catholic Network. Welcome back to Let Me Be Frank, featuring Bishop Frank Caggiano. Excellency, so we were talking about um, abortion and, and uh, euthanasia. We're going to talk about uh, now the dignity of the human person. Everything in between. Everything in between, right. yes. So, so, right, a person is born but not dying. What happens in between? That's right. <laughs> let's start with... Um, compassion for the poor. Yes, let's start even before the, we do that. Let's talk about the culture of death. Okay. That St. John Paul speaks about Evangelium Vitae, right? It's 25th anniversary. Because that colors, I think, not only the, the, the societal acceptance of abortion and euthanasia at the end, beginning and end of life, but how people are treated in between. Mm. Okay, because there is a loss of the sacredness of life in every season of life. Yeah. That there's an inherent dignity, and therefore with that dignity comes a common responsibility to ensure that everyone has the basic means they need, right, simply because they are human beings, not because the state offers it to them. Mm -hmm. It's not a concession. It comes from the dignity of who they are. It is a God-given right, okay? That that um, is not always held, or it's held 
for some and not others. And so we create a distorted society that puts people into categories. And once they're in categories, then segregates them or denies them opportunities or gives them less of, of, uh, of the share of what the world offers in God's goodness so that they could basically survive and more than that, have basic ability to thrive. Right. So when you talk about the poor or the immigrant or you talk about the sin of racism, and that is why the bishop said racism is a sin against the dignity of life. All of those are consequences of a society that is very comfortable wallowing in the culture of death. Yeah. Because if you embrace the culture of life, which again, St. John Paul speaks to us about, you embrace the biblical insights, you embrace the theological and philosophical consequences of that, this society needs significant change. And one of the great enemies to respecting life is complacency. Because if there are have-nots, there are then haves. Correct. Right? Yeah. And sometimes those who have uh, shift in color and texture. Mm -hmm. Because in certain respects, I may be a have-not. In certain respects, I may be a have. And to risk the possibility of a society that is going to go through wholesale change, many people, it frightens many people. And the, perhaps they have reason to be frightened because in recent history, in humanity, even in the United States, the attempts to right those wrongs mm -hmm. are humanistic in tendency and orientation. Right. They're not based in uh, what's ultimately true, which is what God is asking of us. And if God doesn't play a role in the solution, you're only gonna make the problem worse. Right, yeah. Right? So, talking about the poor, right? Um, poverty in and of itself is not a value, okay? To embrace it for a higher good, like spiritual poverty, detachment from materials, is an obligation of the believer, okay? So to be denied your basic goods, the things you need, is not a good, right? Right. But to be detached from them is a spiritual good. So we're not glorifying poverty in our faith, right? right? And therefore, so oh, you're poor, how lucky are you? Right, right. <laughs> no, all right? But for those who are in the have category, the question they need to think about, and that it pr it very much includes me, and perhaps you, is how detached I, am I from the things I have, right. so that those who are denied the basics can have the basics, Yeah. right? Because one can't happen without the other. But the poor, you know, it's, it's interesting. I mean, I have met some of the finest people and some of the most spiritually vibrant people who have also been, have struggled with material poverty. And I often wonder to myself if that is not in part the gift God has given them 
by not placing their trust in the very material things that oftentimes we fall into the temptation of placing our trust in. Yeah. Right? The poor many times can see God clearer than those who are distracted with a lot of nonsense. Yeah. And a lot of our possessions are nonsense. Simply because they don't have the distractions that you're talking right. about. Yeah, exactly. Right. But nonetheless, there is a societal obligation, and quite frankly, there is a Christian obligation to ensure that the poor are cared for, that they have food, that they have water, that they have housing, mm-hmm. and they have opportunities for employment that gives them not only the means to sustain themselves, but the self-respect that comes from work. Do you consider, right? Now, speaking from Catholic Relief Services, right, of which I have the privilege to be a part, right? Every day, there are hundreds of millions of people who don't have access to drinkable water. There are some countries where people walk seven miles each way with a bucket for drinkable water. Now, I ask you, in our 21st century, how can that be? Yeah. And people will say, well, their governments are corrupt. We give them aid and it doesn't go to the people involved. This I understand. Yeah, this could very well be true but we don't give up the struggle to allow them a sustainable life because they are God's children. That comes with the dignity of who they are. It's not something we give them as a concession. Yeah, Hmm. right. And even in our own country, we have tens of millions of people in poverty in some of the strangest places. Not always in urban areas or what we used to call the ghettos. Mm -hmm. Not always. It's even in affluent areas, Mm -hmm. behind closed doors and behind shut shutters. Hmm. Right? I mean, you consider the wealth of this country. It's abominable that people actually, that we have as many homeless people wandering the streets, even in, a, in, in my former hometown of New York City. Yeah. Even here in Stanford, yeah. when you drive to 95, there are now people begging, yeah. which I had not seen six or seven years ago, when I first, seven years ago when I first came. Yeah. It, it, when you start looking at the at some of the causes of that it almost seems unsolvable because there's so many inputs into that from mental health to uh, economic opportunities to mm-hmm. family life oh absolutely poverty becomes cyclical poverty creates its own culture and it becomes that much more difficult for for example children and their children who grow up in poverty to break the cycle mm-hmm. simply because you need to survive for the immediate. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I, I am a firm believer as a, as a Christian and as a man of faith and as a cleric that evolution is far more effective than revolution. Mm. Okay. Evolution can happen if Christians become leaven in society. And what does that mean? That means that you're not gonna tackle the whole world at one felt swoop. But the Lord will grant you today those things that you can do concretely to address respecting life in between the two, birth and death. 
Yeah. Right. Whether, as we said, a child, an elderly parent, an elderly neighbor, a, 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 a colleague that's struggling to raise children. Yes. Someone who may be unemployed because of COVID-19. Yeah. There's so many opportunities to do that. So if you do it, I do it, John does it, everybody, everybody who's a believer does it, that won't start changing yeah. the society around us. That evolution will speed up. Yep. Right. But to believe that it's only going to come from the top, that somehow the mystical rulers that lead the country, wherever they lead the country, no matter what party they come from, all right, that they're going to come up with some grand plan that's going to solve all the social ills of the world. Oh, you got to be kidding me. Right? Because will God motivate all of that at every aspect from conception to death and everything in between? Is there any person out there in the political establishment who will see it completely holistically? Yeah. We have to do it from below. Yeah. Just like uh, you've, you've compared today to the apostolic times so many times and it fits. And in, in there, the Roman government was not doing it, but the Christians did it one-on-one -on -one at a personal level. Mm -hmm. And then other people would say, wow, look at how they mm -hmm. love mm -hmm. other people. Right. And, don't, and, and please don't misunderstand me. We have an obligation to hold our politicians and elected officials responsible for what they do, without a doubt. And they have a role to play because laws should be just. And they should respect life, all of life, from conception to natural death, right? And we should advocate for that. It, that is our political right. Yeah. But we should not be, we should not be um, uh, lulled into the belief that that's going to solve the problem. Because the truth is, it's going to be from below. It's going to be when the army of Christians unleash themselves in society and truly make respecting life their one of their principal fundamental duties, then society will begin to change. And quite frankly, those who are elected will notice. Yeah, yeah. They will notice and they will respond. Yeah, so we have, we have a lot of different things we need to do. Show up in force at the March for Life, uh, love the people that we see on a day-to-day -day basis, right. and right. vote. Vote, absolutely, and be intentional and, uh, and specific about what we do and why we do it. Yeah. Okay, so it is no mistake that the secular culture in which we live, the public square, does not want faith discourse. Mm -hmm. And one would say, why? Well, well because when I, where I came from, where I grew up, if you couldn't win the fight you didn't pick the fight and there is an inherent admission on the part of the secular world that if they did introduce faith into the common square into the public square they would lose the argument yeah they would yeah <laughs> so they're afraid They'll never admit it, but they're afraid. Right. So who's going to stop me or you or, or, or the, how many Christians are there in this country? 135 million? 150 million? If, well, I think, yeah. I'm, I mean, at least a quarter of the country is Catholic. Is Catholic, so. and the other quarter is, is, is Christians. Of other, so if you add them all up, right, it's, it's half the country at least. Yeah, yeah. And even we as a church are a quarter of the country. Could you imagine if we became intentional and vocal about why we do what we do? Yeah. <laughs> then it's already in the public square. Yeah. No one can stop it. Yeah.
I mean, we need we need a conversion of our own hearts and to live authentically ourselves first. But but yeah, that would be formidable. Oh, without a doubt. And you know what? On, on a certain level, I don't want to be Pollyanna either. I, I understand we all live under stresses and, and strains. And, you know, many a, a, a good, faithful Catholic is mightily struggling in their own homes, mm-hmm. <laughs> trying to raise children, trying to, to live a faithful life in a very confused uh, world. Right. Um, so I, I understand that. But but my point is, we're, <laughs> if, you, if you examine your conscience every day, you are in some ways already doing this. Mm. And what I'm suggesting is we become intentional when we do it, right? So people understand why we're doing what we're doing. That begins to raise the tenor of the discussion, to talk about life that should affect our political order, but it allows God to take the lead in doing that, rather than some humanitarian basis or purpose. Yeah. Can Can I ask you, Excellency, so... This is an issue that's come up and been uh, a, a big issue over the past four, four or five years. And you know, keeping in mind, there's no one political party that fully embodies Catholic teaching. To be Catholic is not to be Republican, it's not to be Democrat, but it's, um, it's the issue of immigration. And you know, a nation must have rules and the right to protect its citizens and the right to control the inflow of people through its borders. They can't just be compelled to open the floodgates to everybody. But at the same time, there's this fundamental Christian idea that's based on Jesus' own words when he said, when I was hungry, you gave me food. Mm-hmm. When I was a stranger, you welcomed me. Mm-hmm. Um, can, you, sure. can you talk about immigration a little bit? Of course, absolutely. Well, it's a touchy subject for me, the son of immigrants. Yes. Okay. Um, and America is an immigrant country. Right. Because honestly, except for the indigenous right, Native Americans, we all came from somewhere else in some way, shape, or form, right? Right. So it's at the heart of who we are. It's the genius of the American experiment, right? Because the more diverse the population, the more open it is, the stronger it becomes, the more resilient it becomes. So now... The laws that regulate immigration are absolutely essential, first and foremost, to protect the immigrants themselves. Mm. Because I can tell you, my friend, horror stories of people who came to this country and did not come legally, and they were at the mercy of people who used them, abused them, and tossed them away. Yeah. Right, So those laws are not only meant to protect the native population, quote-unquote, and the interests of the state, but they actually exist to protect the interests of the immigrants. So therefore, we do need laws, and we do need to follow them. Mm -hmm. But having said that, the laws should not be used as an excuse to close our borders or to prevent immigrants from coming, some of whom in their home countries are being repressed and oppressed precisely for their Christian faith. Right. Or their religious faith, mm-hmm. which is that's abhorrent, right? For us as Americans, we should all stand together and allow those people legal entree so that they have an opportunity to escape 
which is just barbaric conditions to live under. Now, once they come, they need to be given, like we talked about, the basic necessities until they can stand on their feet. And my experience has been, and I'm no expert, my experience has been when I was pastor at St. Dominic's and, other, and now as bishop, that the vast majority of immigrants who come want to make a better life for themselves. They did not come 4,000 miles to live in poverty when they just left poverty. Yes, okay. right. They want, and this allows them the means. Now, in a perfect world, which we are far from, they should be able to have those means in their home country mm-hmm. so that they would not have to make the humongous sacrifice of giving up language and culture and neighbors and friends and all the rest to come to a foreign land, right? But they do because of desperation, oftentimes desperation. So they need to have the means to be able to provide their own livelihood. And I, my experience has been most wanted. They're looking for it and they do it. Yeah. They're coming here for opportunity, not for a handout. Right. Yep. Right, exactly. And the fact that um, we as a nation are struggling with this, again, it's a false choice. It's not a question of whether or not immigrants should be allowed into the country because that's the soul of who we have always been. But it's a question of how to admit them in and to reform our laws so that they are not, um, they are not used to weaponize some sense of nativism. Yeah. Right? So again, like everything else social, it's complex. And when God leaves the picture, it becomes ever more confused and could be ever more destructive. Yeah. So I'm hearing this recurring theme over the many months that we've been talking, that what we, what you, the listener, what I, Steve, am uh, responsible for is what, what I can do. And that is, again, love the person in front of me uh, who is, in, you know, like, uh, Mother Teresa, when she went to London, there's that story of she heard that there were so many homeless in London, and so she wanted to be taken out to see some of them. And they saw a homeless man there on the street, so she got out of the car and she went over, and she just knelt down next to him and, and held his hand. And he looked up and just he just said, it's been so long since I felt the warmth of another human hand. It's, it's the person in front of her, and then at the same time, as you mentioned a few weeks ago, she stands up in front of President Clinton and says, stop killing babies, I'll take them. So what the situations that we find ourselves in, that's where we can make a, a difference. Without a doubt. Yeah. Yeah, without a doubt. See, <clears throat> in the gospel, when Jesus says, give to Caesar what is Caesar, and give to God what is God, um, he is reminding the Pharisees and scribes that we do, we, have, we, we live in two realities. We have an earthly reality, which could be very much um, imperfect mm-hmm. to barbarous. Mm-hmm. Right. But we are citizens of a kingdom. And we live in this world so that the structures of this world are informed by the only kingdom that will last forever. That is why we give God what, what is due to God. Yeah. Right? So in the end, to your point, um, how then do you bring the earthly kingdom to conversion? 
You do it from below, mm-hmm. you do it from above, and you do it everywhere in between. It's the acts that are within your control and mind that change lives, yeah. that become leaven for society. And then there are policy questions. But again, I caution the policy questions. The policy questions have to be in some way, shape, or form. If they're going to be truly transformative, they cannot simply be humanitarian. Right. Right. They have to be based on the higher truths. Yes. Right? And right now, there's very little discussion of that. Yeah. Right. So we have to get enough people on the ground speaking of this in a really convincing, compelling way and yeah. living that faith so that it almost becomes a groundswell that the people on top could not avoid it anymore. Yes. Yep. All right, let's take, uh, let's take one more break, Excellency, and then uh, we got a listener question for you when we come back. Great. Why do we need Catholic radio? Because not everybody's sitting in front of a computer or watching their television set at home. How about when driving to work? How about while at work at your desk? Catholic Radio is there for you. I may be a Catholic priest, but I'm still a student of the faith. And Catholic Radio helps supply good material, whether it be a question and answer format show, whether it be a show itself on doctrine or theology. I myself, as a priest, am always learning. Welcome back to Let Me Be Frank with Bishop Frank Caggiano. Excellency, uh, here's the question we got this week. The listener wrote in, Bishop Frank, thank you for your show. I have a loved one who left the church several years ago and recently passed away. Can I believe she is in heaven even though she wasn't Catholic? Now that, my friend, is a question I think many people struggle with in the various situations they find themselves. Yeah. Um, Particularly parents whose children have left the faith or grandchildren have left the faith. And there are some things that I guess we have to remember. First of all, that she can believe she is saved. We really can't say that about anyone. We can only hope that we are saved, Mm -hmm. even believers, because we really put ourselves into the merciful arms of God um, so that we may be forgiven and found worthy in in the grace of Jesus Christ to live glory with him. Yes, she can certainly hope that, because in the end, the Lord made clear in the sacred scriptures that salvation is offered to all. It is God's will that all be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And um, it is very, it is, it is spiritually unhelpful. It could actually be dangerous for us to once again fall into the cardinal sin and make ourselves the external divine judges of whether a person was saved or not. I do not know if this person actually will come to heaven, but I can hope that that person, and perhaps it's the very loved, it's interesting, a loved one, the very love that was shared and still remains could be very much the one vestige that can bring that person in the mystery of death before God Mm. to, through purgation, to come to the glory of eternal life. Mm-hmm. Right, um, God is great. God is merciful. God's love is generous. It's almost reckless. Is everyone saved? Sadly, no. Uh, is there a hell? Without a doubt. But is there a heaven? Yeah, without a doubt. And ultimately, 
we commend them. So my suggestion here is, yes, hope for that. Yes, do it with fervent prayer, but pray for the person. Yeah. Pray. That is the greatest gift love could demand in this situation. And trust in God's mercy. That would be my response to that. Yeah. We should be praying for everybody who passes away. Oh, without a doubt. Yeah. And, and, and ask people to pray for us. Yeah. Upon the moments of our death and beyond. It may sound strange, right? You know, I joke about it all the time. You know, I'm 62 now. I, I, I'm, I'm two-thirds dead at this point. <laughs> this, who knows what's left, right? And I'm half facetious. I really am half facetious. Because I'm, I'm not looking to die. Please don't get me wrong. But uh, I am more ready to die now than I did when I was in my 20s and 30s. Yeah. Right? Um, so I joke about it with my niece and nephew and others. I say, I want you to pray for me. Um, because I am hardly sinless and hardly perfect. And I dare say maybe the same is true for you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I didn't want to say anything. But. <laughs> so, yeah. But hope for it. Yeah. And pray for the person. Yeah. All right. So if you're listening and you have a question for Bishop Frank, send it in to us. You can send it on the Veritas app. You can send it on Facebook or you can email questions at veritascatholic.com. You can always find Bishop Frank Caggiano on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Veritas is there too. Uh, Excellency, before we go, would you please give us your blessing? Absolutely. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, we lift up to you every human life, for they are your creation and your precious possession. In the culture of death in which we walk, may the light of faith enlighten the hearts and minds of all people, that they may recognize the beauty of life from the moment it is conceived to the moment of its natural death that we may work together to build a society that respects life, all life, and that you may send the Holy Spirit upon us so that we may be fervent workers to build a culture of life in our midst for the sake of our sisters and brothers and to your honor and glory. And may the blessing of Almighty God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit come upon you and remain with you forever. Amen. Amen. Steve, thank you. Thanks, Excellency. See you again.